Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Shrobsky Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser bird logging app, Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously, where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website, www.thebirdinglife.com, and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and please take some time to rate and comment on it. So this is episode 19 of the Birding Life podcast, and today I'm excited to have a chat with Dr. Lucy Kemp from the Mabula Ground Hornbill Project. She shares all about these charismatic birds, their conservation status, the Ground Hornbill Project, and lots more. Stay tuned to the end because we have an exciting announcement of how you can get involved and make a difference in this project, while at the same time standing in line to win some amazing prizes. So, um, Lucy, I want to welcome you to the show. It's really good to chat. I know we've been chatting a while about, you know, getting you on the show. And we're going to have a chat um, today about the Mabula Ground Hornwall Project, a really exciting project. And at the end of the show, we're going to have something really exciting to announce. So for those who are tuning in, make sure to stay tuned right until the end. So before we chat about the project, um, it's really exciting. We're in Women's Month right now, and we're celebrating women in birding and women in conservation and you're someone who's do, who's really doing significant work in the area of conservation in our country so can you tell us a little bit about your journey and also how you ended up being involved in the Mabula Ground Hornball project uh, cool thanks Adam um, yeah and hi to to all of your listeners yeah it's been a bit of a circuitous route for me um, my my parents did all the early research on ground hornbills in Kruger um, sort of starting in 1966 um, so ground hornbills have been part of my life since day dot. Um, I'm not sure I always appreciated them for what they were worth. Um, you know, it was sort of dragged along every school holiday, you know, was ground hornbill breeding season. So we were good little research slaves, but it instilled in me, uh, definitely a love of wild places. Um, and I guess as I grew up and developed my career, a need to keep those wild places safe and not just the places, but everything in them. Um, I did try very hard to have nothing to do with birds at all. Um, I studied marine biology. Um, I worked in Namibia on black rhino and high value plant species as an alternative for ecotourism. So, you know, I've always been dead keen on conservation, but I guess trying to avoid birds as best I can and especially dad species. Um, but, you know, now I'm neck deep in ground hornbills um, and, and really loving it, actually. I know we're going to chat a bit, little bit just now about the conservation status of the ground hornbill, but... You know, I always ask this to people who are on the show, especially those involved in bird conservation. There's, you know, use the word, there's those sexier animals. There's leopards and there's lions. And those are the things that get the most traction. So why did you choose to focus on a, on a bird with cool, with cool eyelashes and a very charismatic bird? What, what, yeah, what was it about the, the ground hornbill that yeah, attracted you and made you want to be a part of conserving these 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 birds 
Um, I, I think all of conservation is problem solving. You know, there's not really a textbook on how to do any of this. Um, and ground hornbills are actually really challenging. They're socially complex, they're long lived. Um, all of their life history traits really make them extinction prone. Um, so, you know, they're a great challenge. Um, but also, you know, I'm, I really uh, feel that without people involved, conservation is never going to work. You can know all you know about a species, but unless you can get um, the people who share the, the habitat with them on board, you know, you're just not going to get traction. And, and for me, trying to find ways of translating the science to getting people to care about these birds and, and then take that next step and actually look out for them and protect them um, is probably what interests me most. So we're going to chat all about the hornbill and I know I listed my favorite bird as the, the oyster catcher and Lucy said, I've got to start changing that. So maybe by the end of this episode, I might change my favorite bird. I don't know yet. We'll see how that goes. But we have a listenership all around the world. And we actually had a Canadian guy who came birding with us about a year or two years ago. And I remember when he went back, I said, what's your favorite bird? And his favorite bird was actually the Southern Ground Hornbill. So it really grabbed his heart. Um, but for the benefit of those who may have never seen a southern ground or has never seen a, a, a ground hornbill, can you tell us a little bit about the bird? Tell us about how it looks, its behavior, and what makes this bird the special bird that it is. All right. Um, so it's a big bird. They stand about a meter tall. Um, there's two species in the uh, Bucorvus genus. There's the southern ground hornbill, which is the one that we work with. And then north of the equator in Africa is the northern or Abyssinian ground hornbill. Our birds have got um, all black plumage except for uh, the white primaries. So only in flight will you see those. Um, and they're spectacular in flight. Uh, they're just huge. They're charismatic. They very dinosaur looking um, when they run. Uh, they're very Jurassic Park Velociraptor. They have one of the striking, most um, powerful striking action of any, any bird. They've got an enormously strong neck and that's, you know, they need that for sort of pounding through the head of a puffado or black mamba, pounding through a tortoise shell. Uh, so they, they, They've got this incredibly strong bill, um, used like a dagger, but equally they can use it like the most precise, delicate pair of tweezers. So they can catch flying ants out of the air or they can hammer big stuff. Um, so they're really versatile, uh, very opportunistic, which I think is one thing that is going to um, be in their favor going forward. As you mentioned, there's those luscious lashes. I think any supermodel uh, in the world would be jealous of those. And those are actually modified feathers that are, they use to protect their eyes from the sun and also from dust because they're such visual hunters. Um, they need to keep those eyeballs as safe as possible. And then they've got that enormous throat pouch. Um, and we've done some research um, to show that that's how they offload a lot of heat. Um, and so that's one of the things we're going to be studying going forward, given that climate change is going to be an issue. Um, they do, they are a bird that uh, suffers heat stress quite easily with that black plumage. Um, so, you know, just trying to understand what parts of their body um, is really going to be good for them going forward from conservation, from a conservation point of view, but also what things we need to try and manage um, to give them the best chance um, for a for a sound future um, in our savannas. What is the distribution of the Southern Ground Hornbill and also what sort of habitat is it found in? They're quite um, generalist, sort of, but they found sort of within the savanna grassland belt. So in South Africa, um, from the Eastern Cape, 
um, through KwaZulu-Natal, through Swaziland, um, up into the Lofelt, um, the Kruger Lofelt, um, and then across the Limpopo River Valley. Um, so sort of an arc on the eastern side of South Africa. Um, obviously, we've lost a lot of their range. We've, they've lost about 60% of their range in total, and that's what we're trying to, to fix. Um, and then they carry on up all the way through to southern Kenya, so a very wide distribution. And wherever, wherever they are in Africa, they're known as the rainbird or the thunderbird um, and very culturally important. So let's chat about the conservation status of the ground hornbill. I think a lot of, there's a lot of emphasis, and, and maybe rightly so, on the conservation of animals such as rhino. And I know there's a lot of projects around, even around lions with the whole canned hunting and this kind of thing. So let's talk about the conservation status of the, of the, ground, the southern ground hornbill. How is it doing? What is the conservation status like of this, this bird? Um, yeah, so I mean, a lot of species are, are taking strain um, under under the, the realm of the humans, unfortunately. Um, and ground hornbills, unfortunately, are now listed as endangered in South Africa um, and in Namibia and Swaziland. Um, so we've got approximately 400 family groups left in South Africa, that's it. And about a third of those are, are safe within the borders of Kruger, uh, but it's the other two thirds that we're really worried about that are, occur across private land, uh, communal grazing lands, um, timber, sugarcane, and, and those are the ones that we're trying to do our best to protect. Let's just, let's just put it out there, because a lot of people would know about, for example, the rhino. How would the, you know, are they more threatened than the rhino? Or, you know, you know if you were to compare that to a rhino, which a lot of people know about. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know the exact numbers for rhino, but definitely in excess of 20,000 in South Africa. Um, and we're sitting with about 1,500 ground hornbill adults. Um, so we have significantly less ground hornbills to work with. Um, and, you know, that's why, you know, we really need to get a move on with the conservation and the modeling work that we've done shows that without conservation support, we are going to lose them from our landscapes. Yeah, so let me let me ask a question. Let me play devil's advocate. Devil's advocate quickly. A lot of people are passionate about rhino support and and these kinds of things. You know, so you know we're going to talk about a little bit more about the project in a moment. But why is conserving um, ground hornbills that important? You know, why why do you think it's important that people get behind projects where ground hornbills are being are being saved? And maybe even not just ground hornbills, but maybe some of the the less the lesser known species that are actually suffering why, why do you think it is important i think given that we humans are causing most of the problems um i think we do need to take responsibility for for all species um you know when they're gone they're gone um and for a start ground hornbills are, are genetically uh, of interest given that there's only two species within the genus um, but they're not, they're also um, ecological, ecologically important, they're top order predators, you know, so that already gives them an important role within their own ecosystems, but they're also culturally important. You know, these birds have been part of African folklore for millennia, um, and so it's not just within an ecosystem point of view, but they, they're deeply integrated in our lives too. And then what are the main threats that are leading to the decline of the species? Uh, sadly, just about all of them, again, are human-induced. Um, so there's still a number of farmers in South Africa that use poison bait uh, for so-called pest species, and ground hornbills do scavenge. Uh, so if a farmer puts out a little bait item for feral dogs or jackal or hyena, if a ground hornbill group finds that, they, they will eat it. Um, and because of the, the, the way that they forage together as a group, um, it means that it's very likely that you poison the entire group rather than just an individual. So the losses are often much bigger. 
and then in terms of just the bait size that they take, you know, vultures soaring high uh, will come down for big, big items, um, you know, and unfortunately some of those are poisoned too. Um, but ground hornbills are walking through the bush and as soon as they find even the tiniest little morsel of yumminess, um, they're going to take it. So they also get nailed by a lot of the smaller bait items that are put out. So poisoning really is a big one. We, there's a lot of, of game hunting in South Africa, and unfortunately, ground hornbills, like vultures, uh, suffer from lead toxicosis. So if they scavenge on any offal left over after a hunt that may contain some tiny shards of lead, um, that's, that's enough to poison them. So um, you're looking at something about the third of a grain of rice, um, and that's enough uh, to wipe out a ground hornbill. So, so that's something that we need to try and tackle. Uh, you know, it's been well known for vultures for years, um, but it's only come to our attention recently. And so we're doing our best to try and sort of tr find ways working with industry to try and turn that around. Um, and then loss of nests. Um, ground hornbills need about a 40 to 50 centre diameter hollow um, in a big tree or on a cliff ledge. Um, and we're sort of running out of those big trees in our landscape. Could be due to elephant impact, um, lots of fires, unseasonal fires, and even now with the changing climate, we're losing a lot of our riverine vegetation due to freak floods and strong winds. Um, so the more we lose these nests, um, those groups then lose their ability to breed within any given year. Uh, and then trade. Ground hornbills are traded for the aviculture trade. Sort of official zoo population stands at about 400 birds in total, which isn't a lot given that that's taken from Kenya all the way down to South Africa. Um, but we're seeing an increase in trade, you know, in some parts up to 400 birds a year being exported. And we're not really sure where those are going. So the live trade's a concern. We're starting to see some body part trade on the internet. And then local trade. Um, the birds, because they're culturally important, um, are used for belief-based medicine and ritual. And so they're used locally. And very occasionally, they do turn up in some of the traditional medicine markets. Um, ground hornbills love to roost on big open structures you know, preferably dead trees. They don't really like roosting in, in trees that have got a lot of foliage. They feel safer when they can see around them. And unfortunately, what our parastatal has done is put up perfect ground hornbill roosts across the landscape, unfortunately, with the accompanying risk of electrocution. They're big birds. Um, they've got a big wide span and, and they're inquisitive. So if they land on a transformer box and they might hear buzzing of a beehive or something, they'll poke around in amongst all of those components. And unfortunately, they do get electrocuted that way. So unfortunately, you know, there is obviously habitat uh, transformation, fragmentation, um, but the biggest threat to them really is, is what we're doing and how we modifying the landscape. So you've spoken about the cultural aspect. Um, you know, for a lot of people overseas, it might be something they might be the first time hearing about. You know, what is the cultural beliefs around the hornbill and, and, and how does that threaten them? Um, so we, we, we've, we're doing a lot of research on that at the moment, trying to understand it. There's, in general, the birds are associated with the first good rains of the season. Um, and that has a, a very real biological link. Ground hornbills don't lay eggs until the first good, good thunderstorm of the season comes. Um, and people over millennia have learned that hearing birds calling near a nest repeatedly throughout the day is an indication that the rains are coming because that is an indication of birds getting ready to breed. Um, and we know that ground hornbills, they call every morning, you know, as part of their territorial defense, but in the run up to laying eggs, they call throughout the day. And people have learned that when they hear that, it means good rains are coming. And obviously if you're a subsistence farmer, you're living in a rural area, 
that is a sign of good crops um, and everything associated with it. You have a good harvest, good crops, good rains. Um, it means that the rest of the year is going to be much easier for you. You know, it's a very positive association. Rain is a good thing. But then there's subtle differences between lang language groups and even within language groups as to what that means for population conservation for the birds. In some areas, um, if, if it's a very strong drought, you might need a ground hornball feather to try and turn around that drought. Whereas in other parts, you might need a whole body. And, you know, when we're talking down to just 400 groups, um, that makes a huge difference uh, for, what, for what that means for the ground hornbill population. If you're taking a feather, no harm done. If the bird that you're using for in a time of drought is a breeding female, that has uh, significant repercussions for the population. But by and large, um, without the cultural protection, ground hornbills would be in a lot worse place than they are now. Um, and we often say that if you're a ground hornbill uh, hatched in South Africa, you'd like to be in Kruger, or you'd like to be uh, in rural communal areas on Zulu-speaking land or Xhosa-speaking land. Um, those are the areas where you are afforded cultural protection just by virtue of all the strong associations and positive associations. Uh, for sure, there, there's an element of fear. They're a big, scary bird and you don't want them landing on your roof, you want to chase them away. But that cultural association is what is keeping them safe. So what we're trying to do is understand these subtle nuances uh, within these perceptions and belief systems to find ways of, of developing bespoke conservation um, uh, education campaigns so that we can try and help support that and encourage it because it, it really, it's a, it's a it's something that not all species have, this cultural protection, um, and it's a very valuable conservation tool. This podcast is made possible by one of our sponsors, Liz at Lancaster. What bird watcher would want to stay in the middle of a busy city? You clearly don't know the garden suburbs of Joburg nor the amazing bird watching sites close by. We have seen or heard 45 species in the garden right here at Liz at Lancaster. And in a nearby Delta Park, a mere 10-minute walk, more than 250 species have been recorded. You can enjoy breakfast on the guesthouse patio, which opens out onto the garden, and wake up to the bird calls in your private ensuite units. Each unit is completely self-contained with enclosed private patio and fully equipped kitchenette. Lizard Lancaster is a four-star guesthouse, top-rated on TripAdvisor for nearly a decade now. We are recognized by BirdLife SA as a birder-friendly establishment and we can arrange bird-watching tours with local experts. Be sure to check out our blog www.lizatlancaster.co.za and search for birdwatching. We look forward to welcoming you. So we've spoken about how amazing this bird is and we've also spoken about the importance of conserving them. Um, so let's chat about the Grand Hornball project. Um, can you give us a short overview of the project and also what the project involves? Um, so given that they've got all these people threats, um, so you know there's a lot going against them, and then you couple that with their, their biological traits. They, they live very long, um, estimated up to 70 years. Uh, they only breed late, um, so they only reach uh, sexual maturity when they're about eight or 10. Um, so they've got all these biological traits, which when you couple them with the anthropogenic threat, means that they're really having a tough time of maintaining a population. And so 
although the population is currently listed as endangered, um, it's a very good chance that they're still actually declining towards critically endangered. And obviously, once you start hitting that end of a conservation status, it's much harder to try and bring that species back from the brink. So we're doing everything we can to slow the decline and then hopefully with time reverse that decline. And so there's no ways... Uh, um, we're going to be able to do that with any one tool. Um, so we use a multi-pronged approach, very much transdisciplinary. Um, we need, you know, to sort of use all tools available to us and 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 engage with with other professionals, um, social scientists, um, uh, timber industry, sugarcane, the hunting industry. You know, everyone is going to have to play a role if we're going to turn things around. And so it's a massive collaborative effort. Um, as well. I do need to mention that we're playing our part, but you know, there's a lot of people engaged in trying to, to turn things around for the species and every single one of them is needed. So on our side, we've got sort of a six pronged um, model that we work on. So the first thing is monitoring. We really need to know what we've got. Um, so that we we can monitor, um, find where localized declines are and invest our resources there. Um, and then also hopefully with time, as conservation action starts taking hold, we should then be able to show that, that the populations are regrowing in areas. Um, and one of those areas is the Limpopo River Valley population. That population was pretty much wiped out in the 80s. A combination of severe drought and the government at the time uh, giving out strychnine to farmers to use as control for rabies vectors um, and that population is slowly growing back and we're up to about 20 groups now um, so you know we would also like to document the successes rather than just the losses um, so monitoring is really key uh, both at a national scale and also then we have subsamples where we monitor much in depth to make sure that we pick up any early diseases so a lot of disease surveillance and also you know trade in birds happens quickly um, someone will post that some species is good for something and suddenly that trade booms so we're also monitoring trade very carefully uh, so that if we start to see things pick up we can act quickly rather than down the line you know something like the helmeted hornbill in asia went from least concerned to critically endangered in just five years um, you know so we definitely want to make sure that we're monitoring for that kind of movement the next thing we do um, is then mitigation. Um, so obviously we're trying every one of those threats. We're trying to find ways to problem solve. So we're working very closely with ESCOM um, to, to insulate transformer boxes, uh, that new transformer boxes that go out um, are already pre-insulated so that, you know, as the electrical infrastructure in South Africa expands, that it's not going to become a growing threat to the species. We are members of the National Wildlife Poisoning Prevention Working Group, um, which was launched last year, um, which is a government initiative and is really tackling this at all levels and hope, hopefully we'll be able to help with policy change. Um, and then again, working within that with the lead task team to try and tackle the lead issue. So, so trying for each one to try and find solutions. And then a running theme throughout all of these is the education. Um, because ground hornbills are doing so well in Kruger, most South Africans feel, oh, when I go to Kruger, I see loads of groups, so they must be doing well. And sure, within Kruger, they really are. Uh, we, we reckon that Kruger's at 
full capacity. Those birds are, are doing fine, you know, mostly because they're protected from all of those people threats. But we're trying to get people to understand that it's the birds outside of that that really need protection. And it calls on individual landowners then to become the custodians of their resident group. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite a tricky thing. But equally, because ground hornbills are territorial and residents within that territory, the more of these landowners we can get on board and create sort of de facto little protected areas, then the easier it is. So it's just a case of getting out there and getting the message out. So education runs as a theme throughout everything. Uh, we, we, we run a big education campaign in, in rural schools. Um, we've got a really cool little comic book which uh, talks about a boy and his dog who meet a ground hornbill and they, they walk together through the landscape exploring all of the threats and, and how they can be fixed. And, you know, we would love to get one of those comic books into the hands of every rural child because we believe that will make a massive, massive difference. So those are sort of the big three. Um, the more difficult one and the slow one to achieve is the restoration. So how do we, how do we actually regrow populations? Um, but that's also been some of the, the core focus of our work. Um, and that's the reintroductions. So ground hornbills lay... Uh, two to three eggs on average, but they will only ever rear one of those chicks through to fledging. And the, the, the non-healthy chick, um, or if the or usually the second hatch chick, um, if the first chick is good and healthy, the parents simply let that second one die, essentially of parental neglect. And that has been the source of, of our reintroduction stock because over the years, we've worked out that we can harvest those chicks successfully. So we leave the first chick for the parents to rear. So we're in no way impacting the wild population, but we're essentially doubling productivity of wild nests. And then those chicks are hand-reared. Um, we've now built a specialized um, hand-rearing facility at Loskop Dam. Um, and then those birds, once reared, go into what we call bush schools where they have to learn all of their social skills. Um, and then in time, they become leaders of their own group. So it's a slow process, mostly because they're so socially complicated. Um, but it works. And we've had reintroduced birds breeding successfully in the wild now. We've had natural dispersal. We've been, added, been able to add mates to those dispersals. And so we, we've figured out how to reintroduce such a long-lived, uh, socially complex bird. Um, and then obviously the other thing that we can do under restoration is if a group loses a nest, we're able to provide artificial nests. Um, so, you know, there's a lot going on, um, uh, but it's, you know, we think a combination of all of these is what is going to make a difference for the species. Okay, so um, one thing that was must have been very exciting for you guys was the fact that the Southern Garden Hobble was chosen as the BirdLife South Africa Bird of the Year, which has obviously given some really good exposure to the to the to the bird and hopefully to the project also. It's been incredible. It's been such a fun collaboration with BirdLife. Um, they've produced amazing awareness material. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously we said 2020 was the year because 2020 has been a bit of a nightmare for everyone. Um, you know, it would have been nice if it was a normal year, um, but it's still been fantastic. Uh, we've had great webinars. Um, yeah, and they've really helped us get to get the word out um, and, and continue to find ways to support us. And yeah, it's been a really fun collaboration. I think, you know, as I listen to what you guys do, there's a huge amount of work involved. I mean... You, you know, you're doing amazing work and uh, it must be really labor intensive. So let's chat about, you know, do you, you must have quite a big workforce to use, a whole lot of people involved in the project. Tell us a little bit about the people that are involved in the project, the people that make this happen on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I've got an incredible team. Uh, 
given that it's Women's Month, they're a mostly female team. Uh, and that's not to knock the guys on the team. Um, so, yeah, we've got uh, Ntabi Singh Manama. She's our environmental educator. Um, and, yeah, she, she grew up in a rural area and had no real interest in conservation until she herself interacted with an environmental educator. And that just set up some spark in her. And, and Tubby's now taken it forward as her mission to, to light that spark in other kids. Um, and, yeah, she's just incredible. You put her in front of a group of kids and she just lights up. Um, and, yeah, so she's, she's sort of... Uh, championing the education program in the rural areas. Um, Patience Shito is one of our research students. Um, she's uh, busy with her MSc, and that's mostly looking at the cultural uh, perceptions and how we can use that in conservation. Mapula um, has just, Mokwele has just joined our team. Um, so she's had some background in vulture work and environmental education. Um, and she's also be looking to do a master's, which is great. Um, you know, definitely the whole team always seems to be studying um, at, at, uh, as well as doing their work. So, yeah, they're a hardworking bunch. Um, and then at the, at the Baobab, which is our, our specialist hand-rearing facility there, um, and Natasha Nell sort of is in charge of, of looking after the birds, caring from them. Um, and then her husband, Hein, is sort of uh, the sort of on-the-ground reintroduction guy, um, moving birds, monitoring birds. Um, and then we also have a number of um, interns that help us. Uh, you know, it is a lot of work, as you say. Um, and we try and provide a really nice experience for interns. Um, but in, in, in return, I guess, we use whatever skills they bring. Um, and so we like interns to have a project that's sort of their own um, and that they can really get stuck into. Um, and then luckily, just recently, we've managed to grow the project to the stage where we've been able to take on a full-time research coordinator. Um, so Dr. Jared Alexander has taken that lead. So he's primarily uh, looking at the monitoring plan, running the national monitoring plan, um, but also just making sure that we keep all of our bajillion research projects on the go, that we're doing our analysis properly and that we're actually getting those papers out. So that's sort of our core team. But then, as I said, it's a massive collaborative effort. So, you know, Delisha Gunn from Mpumalanga Parks Board, you know, she's been hand these birds since 96. And, you know, without her, this project, you know, we wouldn't be where we are. Um, and it really takes people like that, um, uh, you know, affiliated with the projects that, that gives us our strength. Um, and yeah, we're hoping that over the years now, she'll be able to sort of train the next generation of hand rearers so we can keep this sustainable ongoing and that we're constantly improving. But yeah, it takes, it, it takes, uh, it takes a community to raise a ground hornbill basically, and then to get it out there and to keep it safe. So yeah, it's, it's not just our team. It's a much bigger project than that. And for those who are listening, is there ways that they can volunteer to get involved in the project? Um, so unfortunately, we're limited by sort of accommodation potential. We're always excited for people with sort of different skills, videography, photography, graphic design, you know, to help us get really cool messaging out. Um, hand rearers, so anyone with hand rearing experience um, is welcome um, at, at the Baobab to help during the breeding season with the hand rearing, the next, the next batch of reintroduction stock. Um, so yeah, I would just encourage people to get in touch uh, and we can see if there's, if there's way and space. But, you know, as I said, it's going to take the full community. So if people feel they have skills to offer, um, we would love to find ways of using them. I do see one of the ways the public can get involved is by submitting sightings. Um, how do they go around submitting a sighting and how are these sightings used? What is the information used for? 
All right. Yeah. So this is super critical, actually. Um, ground hornbills are incredibly hard to census and count. Uh, each each group has a, a territory size of about 100 square kilometers. So even bird atlases going to the same site repeatedly might still miss the group in that territory. So they're actually really hard to get accurate numbers for. Um, and so we, we definitely rely on citizen scientists. Um, Bird Lass is one of our partners on this, which is fantastic. Um, and yeah, we basically just need, if you see ground hornbills, you know, in Kruger, that's great, but, but even more importantly, outside of Kruger, just the group size, date, if you can send a photo, and there are many ways to do that. You can WhatsApp us on our website. There's a, a citing form that you can fill out. You can give us a call. You can drop us an email. Uh, we don't really mind how you send it, whatever is easiest for you. But yeah, so basically this year, uh, it's sort of in timing with the, the launch of the BirdLife Bird of the Year, we launched the national monitoring plan. And this works on a four-year cycle. And essentially, we're working at the Pentad scale, which is the same as, as the standard atlasing. Um, and the nice thing about that is a Pentad roughly equates to a ground humble territory. Um, so we're looking to find Pentads that have never been reported before. So we, we basically call them turning the squares green. Um, and then also re repeats each year we'd like to have uh, at least one positive sighting from all of our known pentads to know that that group is still safe still resident um, and so that's why it's important to just keep sending you know even if you're seeing the same group on your farm um, every record is like gold to us um, and that's what we use as the basis for the national monitoring plan a new system that we've set up recently, which is working really well, is we have what we call champion groups. Um, so it may be a farmer um, or a, a farm manager in an area um, who's really keen and wants to help. And they set up a WhatsApp group for their sort of neighboring community with neighbors, the postman, the policeman, whoever is happy to be involved. Um, and we find the nice thing with the WhatsApp groups is when someone posts, if someone's seen birds in that week and they've forgotten, it's a nice gentle reminder to put that info in. So rather than having to remember to go to your computer to put the data in, it's a very easy, gentle way of reminding people to keep those sightings coming. And a WhatsApp pin is perfect. So it's a really nice, easy way. And, you know, as a consequence, this year alone, we've added 50 new pen tabs to the original sighting data map. So that means that there might be more ground hornbills than we thought. Um, but we need, you know, we need the confirmation of the sightings. I think for those who are using BirdLass, it's as easy as going to the section, clicking on your causes. And one of the, uh, the Southern Ground Hornbill is linked as one of the causes, so it's easy as that. So I remember last year, or yeah, I think it was last year, the year before, I took a drive and um, saw a Southern Ground Hornbill, and I submitted. I think it was actually to you guys, and the guy got back and said it's the first time they've ever recorded a Southern Ground Hornbill in their pentad. So it was quite, a, it's quite exciting, and I think it's, it, you know, for me it was exciting that I was actually able to be to play a small part in this kind of project. So. You know, just going out there, like I said, and birding and atlasing and, and sending the sightings through definitely plays a significant role. But we've spoken to a lot of conservation organizations over this time, and I know COVID-19 has had a devastating effect on many of these projects. So how has this, how's COVID-19 affected your project? 
Yeah, <laughs> COVID. Um, so it's been good and bad. It's been good and beneficial for us in that it's forced us to put the brakes on. So we've been doing a lot of data analysis and writing up data, which you know is is as important as collecting it because the more we get this information out in peer-reviewed journals, the better it is. It also shows sponsors that we you know we're doing good sound science. Um, so it's given us time and space that we probably would have had to fight a lot harder for. And, you know, thankfully the team is safe. Everyone's working from home. Um, yeah, so, so we're all fine and doing product, being productive. Our issue has been that we've lost a lot of sponsorship. Um, I would say 80% of our budget um, is met by international zoos. And obviously once COVID shut the doors to the zoos, they lost their income. Um, and with that, we found a lot of the conservation grants have just dribbled up. And, the, you know, a lot of that was funding that we knew was coming in, you know, so we were kind of, you know, counting on it coming in, uh, you know, and it's understandable. They also need to look after their staff and it's just the reality of where we are. Uh, but we would hate to lose momentum on our work. Um, we're doing our best to keep the show going. Um, but yeah, we've, we've taken a big hit. So one of the things that we're really excited to announce today, and um, we've been in contact with Lucy and the team, and also, um, yeah, the, just the way this whole thing worked from our side was one of the guys who are part of the Birding Life gave a donation to the Mabula project, and I was like, I didn't actually, I actually didn't know much. I'd heard about you guys, and through that donation, it kind of got me looking into what the work you're doing. We just thought it would be great to work with you guys for the month, and it just you know, it's grown from there and we're really excited to announce a partnership for the month of August with the Hormel Project um, and African Freedom and The Birding Life. And we want to raise much needed funds for the project to hopefully make a difference. And I know this this um, podcast goes all around the world and there's lots and lots of people listen to this. And I think if everyone just listens and says, well, they, want to, they can do their small part, I really think that we can make a significant, significant impact in this project. So, um, Lucy, we're really excited to work with you guys. I know we had a, a really cool Zoom chat last night with some other guys that are, that are going to be part of this, and maybe you can share a little bit about that. But can you tell us a little bit about how this project is going to look from the discussions we've had so far? Yeah, so so we, we would like to uh, set up a new uh, crowdfunding campaign. Um, we, we really realize that people are having a tough time of it now. Um, you know, everyone has taken a hit. It's not just us. Um, but as little as five rand can put one of those comic books into the hand of a kid somewhere where, you know, he may pass a group of ground, he or she may pass a group of ground hornbills on his way to school. Um, so, you know, five rand, 10 rand, 50 rand, all of that helps. Uh, and, you know, if we can just keep our boots on the ground, keep our vehicles running, keep our team going. Um, it means we don't lose momentum. And so we, we've come up with a couple of ways that it's it's tiered. Um, so you can choose uh, which aspects of the project you'd like to support. And we've got a bunch of prizes. So for each sort of category, um, we'll be able to put you into a draw to, to win some, some cool stuff. Um, you know, just a way of thanking you because, you know, as I said, everyone has been hard hit by this. Um, and hopefully, aside from that, it'll just be a great awareness tool. And even if you can't help us now, maybe down the line when things improve, um, that's something about this bird sticks in your heart and mind, um, and you'll come back to us. 
Um, and then, you know, just as Adam said, the, the partnership, um, not just with the birding life, but also with African freedom, uh, Proteus cricketer Rassi van Adissen um, and Chris Cardoso um, have set up a really cool environmental fund um, through African freedom. And they've supported us with new tires for our bucky, which is fantastic, because that's the non-sexy stuff that people don't like to, they like to, to support the sexy part of the project. But unfortunately, without tires, we can't get to do the rest. Um, and yeah, so I, I think this is going to be yet another really cool, fun collaboration. So yeah, I'm really excited to work with you guys. And I know over the next month, um, the birding life and I'm sh- uh, and African freedom. I know Russi is also going to be speaking into it. Um, they're one of the coolest cricket players in South Africa. And you know, let's just say, Lucy, I'm sure you we have you have my um, the vote also. We hopefully is going to be the future captain of the Proteus cricket team. So if there's anyone listening from the Proteus setup, yeah, that's our vote. And I think our vote counts for more. Am I right? Absolutely. If he's supporting conservation, he's got to be captain. Yeah, so we're going to be doing a whole lot of, um, throughout the month, a whole lot of um, stuff, information about the Hornball. It's not just going to be asking for money. We're going to put a lot of things out there to let people know what this project, what the Ground Hornball project is doing. Um, also, a whole lot of information about the Ground Hornball. So, you know, by the end of August, um, you're going to be for, you're going to be acquainted with the project. You'll be acquainted with this bird. And what I'm really hoping is that we're going to raise lots and lots of money. Just on, on a side note, um, uh, in terms of, um, the money that gets paid and doesn't go to African freedom, it doesn't come to the burden life at all. That money will be paid directly to the horn, the Grand Hornball project. So yeah, it's it's a great project to get involved in. And, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm asking if you, even if you can't give, you might know somebody else who can give. Um, and you know, for overseas listeners, um, as far as I know, Lucy, the overseas listeners, they can also uh, you know give into this. There is a way they they can give. Am I correct? Yeah, so we're going to be using the platform Give and Gain, um, which is easy for credit card uh, support. It's safe. Um, and so we'll be sharing the link after this. So Lucy, I really just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. And we're really looking forward to this project going forward. Um, so straight as soon as this episode is, is, is finished um, going out, so um, by 8 o'clock tonight, this the link will be live. So don't wait until tomorrow morning. Don't wait until the next day. You know, go tonight and, you know, make your contribution and i really encourage you just this is one of those times i am asking unashamedly you know firstly go and um, like the mabula ground hornball project on um facebook and instagram and all this go check it out on their website and as much as you can when you see the posts this month just share them you don't know who's going to see that post and and you know if you even if you can't give um just by sharing a post um as often as you can it, it on your timeline it actually helps us get the news out and there might just be some you might not be able to give but somebody else might be able to give so even doing something like that makes a difference and it might it might even be money it might just be somebody else who gets educated about this amazing bird so lucy thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and we are looking forward to over the next month chatting at the end of this month we're looking forward to also hearing how a big amount of money has come in so we're looking forward to that that would be incredible. Thank you for, for the platform, Adam. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it does sound like a heavy ask, but also if you're just interested in the bird, just drop us an email. We'd be happy to answer any questions you have. So all the appropriate links will be in the comment section of this podcast, and we are looking forward to parting. So thanks, Lucy. We will chat soon. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. So thanks so much for tuning in today. We are looking forward to partnering with African Freedom to raise funds and bring exposure to the Mabula Ground Hornball Project. The link is in the comments section of this podcast on how to give towards this exciting project and stand in line to win some exciting prizes.
We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comments section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head on over to www.thebirdinglife.com and subscribe to our email address so you don't miss out on any of the posts. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.